Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi there. My name is Zach Twomley, and you're about to listen to the latest episode of the Versailles Anniversary Project. It's a fairly big one, but it's also a very enjoyable one, so thanks for stopping by. If this is your first time listening to this podcast, then, well, this is episode 9, so make sure you're not too confused or lost by listening to the introduction episodes that are, of course, at the beginning of the feed, not too far back. For those of you that are following this chronologically and really enjoying yourselves, that is fantastic. If you would like to tell others about it, if you would like to share the fact that you're enjoying this, that would be super appreciated. You can help this podcast exponentially simply by telling someone, whether that's telling them online by sharing something about it, or whether that's telling someone in person, because a personal recommendation is still the best way to make someone else start listening. It doesn't really work so well when you have to use advertisements and pay people or when you have to pay Facebook to show your podcast in people's Facebook feeds, it works much better when you actually tell people. And when they know you and they know that you're not messing around when you say, when Diplomacy Fells is really good, or the Versailles Anniversary Project is absolute nuts. It is absolute nuts, but we're having a great time with it. Of course, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that the delegation game is also something you should be aware of. In case you weren't aware, delegation game is a fantasy booking style game where you design an avatar and you send him or her to the Paris Peace Conference. So far we have everyone ranging from an Australian, a Hungarian, a Jewish guy, 
we have a Canadian, we have a Japanese person, we have a German socialist, we have all sorts of different folks, and we have 15 of them too, so that's pretty cool. We're doing very well, all we have to do is get to 20 delegates, and then we'll have a solid enough bank of people to begin working forwards with this thing. But either way, it looks as though we won't have any trouble doing that, because we still have a good bit to go before the game actually launches on the 18th of January. The 18th of January, of course, being the day when the Paris Peace Conference actually opened. So we're being as historically accurate as possible. Throughout this six-month-long game, six months or so, that is, I will be throwing various challenges at you guys based on what kind of things happened 100 years ago at the Paris Peace Conference. And then we'll be voting on Facebook. Facebook group looks like the most likely place to be doing this, but I'm open to suggestions. That's where we'll be voting, to see where we stand on different issues and whether or not suggestions that other delegates make, because you're welcome to make suggestions at any time, whether those go through or not. Of course, there is several different rules and checks and balances in this game to make sure people don't go crazy and decide to invade China for no reason or something like that. But anyway, if you want to invade China and you can find the support, by all means, go for it. Can't say that it would go very well, but you're welcome to try. For more information about this, you can, of course, check out the podcast website, wdfpodcast.com forward slash the delegation game or you can sign up for six dollars a month for this game by going to patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails the links of course are in the description below thanks for withstanding these little plugs at the beginning guys this episode is a fairly long one and there's no break in between so if you are prepared if you're on a long commute or if you're just well you're ready to sit down and listen to this or maybe you're exercising if you're in the gym or you're on a run well done Good for you. I myself need to do more of that exact kind of thing and stop eating so many chocolate buttons. But there you go. Let's start this episode. Enjoy it, guys. It's a good one. You are listening 
to the Versailles Anniversary Project, Episode 9. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, and delegates to episode 9 of the Versailles Anniversary Project. So we continue our quest to set some important background context in this series by looking at that impossibly complex section of the continent, which the Big Three cared or did not care for, depending on the circumstances. I'm talking, of course, about Eastern Europe. In addition to the Balkans, which is kind of connected to Eastern Europe, but not really, depending, again, on who you ask... Eastern Europe contained so many conflicting ethnic groups and nationalities, so many spread out identities, and within them so many competing irredentist or expansionist goals, that even the most knowledgeable or informed official at the Paris Peace Conference would have faced difficulties in the extreme. However, a forgotten fact about the Paris Peace Conference was that much of the decisions regarding the borders of that region were not arranged by several stuffy individuals poring over old maps with red pencils. Instead, the region consisted of several instances of people doing it for themselves, so to speak, and taking matters into their own hands. When these key figures in Prague, Warsaw, Bucharest or Belgrade acted, it was plain very early on that no entity at Paris possessed the power or the wherewithal to stop them. A series of fait accomplis, as we will discover, were the true building block of Eastern and Central European borders, rather than the decisions of the Big Three. Occasionally, the actions of the eager new nationalities aided the Big Three in their quest to reimagine Europe, but on other occasions, other powers had bitterly contested claims and counterclaims on regions which, in some cases, they had promised as compensation from an early stage. This episode should unwrap much of the troubling nature of the region, and should underline how out of their depth in many respects the peacemakers were when they attempted to remake the world in mid-January 1919, conscious of the fact that, as they pontificated, the peoples in question had already, well, gotten down to business, and realised their ambitions with terrifying speed, dogmatism, and emotion. Let's do our best to trace these events as I take you to the muddled aftermath of the Great Wars Armistice. The collapse of the Eastern Empires represented, in many respects, a double-edged sword for those nations who had long chafed under the domineering influence of the Tsar, or Emperor, which he had reluctantly pledged his loyalty. Tsar Nicholas II's empire may have withdrawn its claws from Poland, for instance, but what was Poland? Where did Polish land end and Ukrainian land begin? How was this new Polish state to overcome the years of complicated history and diverse ethnographic spread which the autocratic power of the Tsar had glossed over. By ruling all these nationalities under his writ, and with the same iron fist, the Russian Tsar suppressed the Poles, Ukrainians, Belarusians, Ruthenians, Latvians, Lithuanians, Estonians, Finns, and so many others in equal measure. With that iron fist suddenly, stunningly absent by spring 1918 though, and with no German fist left to replace it by autumn of that year, it became apparent almost immediately to those on the ground in the East that they now had the opportunity, like never before, to reimagine their nation as a new state, a republic led for the people, by the people. However, just as it was apparent that this great opportunity had arrived, a euphoric realisation for many of those whose national identities had been stifled, it was also painfully apparent that those Slav, Baltic or Balkan cousins of yours 
who had suffered under similar oppression, would also seek to seize this opportunity. In the scramble that followed, it was inevitable that consensus could not win out, that competing ideas about rights would be proclaimed, and that might would make right. Miles away from these sophisticated ideals about self-determination, democracy, or a new world order, men began to arm themselves and battle in the name of flag, memory, nationality, or tradition, and there was absolutely nothing that those approaching Paris could do to stop them. A perfect example of the kind of conflict brewing in this misunderstood part of the world was that which erupted suddenly and ferociously out of the city of Lvov. Lvov had once been the capital of the Ukrainian voivodeship of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, and it did contain a majority Polish population, but only just. Both the ethnic Poles that lived there and the ethnic Ukrainians considered Lvov to be an essential piece of the puzzle of their new state. On the night of the 31st of October 1918, this conflict erupted into the open, as an idle Ukrainian rifle brigade occupied the city, which provoked the Polish population to rise up in response. What was striking about the Lvov violence was the extent to which the youth in the city became inflamed and radicalized by its events. The Lvov Eaglets were one such Polish group of boys, some of them barely teenagers, who fought in the numerous running battles between the newly declared Ukrainian People's Republic and the Polish forces. In the war which followed between the reforming Polish Second Republic and Ukrainian People's Republic, the Poles gained the upper hand, but they behaved reprehensively in Lvov, tearing down its Ukrainian quarter and murdering more than 300 of the city's Jews in one of the earliest pogroms of the time. The Jews, claimed the Poles, had been working in tandem with the communist Ukrainians, as all Jews were wont to do. This eruption of ethnic violence and the utter powerlessness of the Western Allies to really do anything in this situation demonstrated to all that paid attention that those in possession of sufficient force could have their cake and eat it. Poland, in the end, would push the Ukrainians out of Lvov, and by 1923, according to the League of Nations, Poland would be required to recognise that ethnographical conditions necessitate an autonomous regime in the eastern part of Galicia. No such autonomous regime appeared, and during the interwar period, Poland's rights to Lvov were recognised, and its crimes went unpunished. Recognition of Polish claims to Lvov and eastern Galicia were considerable boons to that reborn republic's early fortunes, as was the boost in reputation which the Poles gained in their campaigns against the Russian Bolsheviks during the Polish-Soviet War, which erupted later in 1919, and effectively, some historians believe at least, saved Western Europe from the Soviet tide. However, with these pogroms in late November 1918, Poland's reputation was not aided. Instead, she was referred to as the Nation of Pogroms by those already unsympathetic to her national aspirations. And yet, Poland had been considered an important enough issue to be mentioned by name in the 13th of Woodrow Wilson's 14 points, in addition to the explicitly expressed desire by the President that this new Polish state should have access to the sea. While Poland's experience during the interwar years has been examined with sympathy and criticism, there is no denying that the emergence of this new state in the centre of Europe balancing between the Germans and Russians, changed Eastern European matters dramatically. For the French, shorn of their Russian ally of previous years, 
A strong Poland was believed to be one of the best tools for restricting Germany, and French officials thus enthusiastically supported Polish claims on land and statehood during and after the Versailles negotiations, as we will see. The Polish Commission and those Polish nationals who travelled to Paris to lobby for their nation's cause proved arguably the most active such group at the Paris Peace Conference, if not the most successful. Poland came away from Paris weighed down with territory and promise, but also controversy. Those 1.3 million East Prussians, separated from their German homeland by the infamous Polish Corridor, would in time haunt the new Polish Republic, as would the free city of Danzig, formerly Gdansk, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth's greatest port at one time. In the immediate aftermath, and in the early 1920s though, Poland's star appeared to be in the ascendant, which absolutely suited France. Poland had long been on France's radar, and the question of Polish independence during or after the war resurfaced consistently, thanks in large part to the presence of a Polish diaspora in France, who had fled from their lands in 1863 following the failed uprising against Russian control. Some 100,000 Polish-French citizens lived in France by the outbreak of the Great War, and as the war progressed and the Russians began to fare notably worse than expected, successive French governments became more open in their criticism of Russian policy towards Poland. From 1915, as the Austro-German advance swept Russian forces out of Poland altogether, it became a moot point what the Russian policy towards Poland had been, since she lost Warsaw in early August 1915 and her forces buckled and undertook a great retreat over that summer. With Poland shorn of its Russian overlord, it became less impolitic to advocate for Polish statehood in France, since Russian interests would no longer be at stake. The Tsar's forces were too busy fighting for Russia to have worried about Poland in any case. Interestingly, the act of taking the Polish question out of the Russian hands and making it one for the Entente to solve divided the British and French. The British believed the act of taking on the Polish mission for statehood would offend and demoralise the Russians, while the French, having long maintained an historic connection with the Poles, wished genuinely to advocate for her interests and imagined that a Poland promised independence would fight alongside the Russians against the Central Powers, thus bolstering the flagging Eastern Front. However, the fortunes of war in the East persuaded her diplomats in time to make some trade-offs. In spring 1917, the twilight period of the Tsarist regime, the French exchanged a Russian guarantee to support French annexationist claims on the Rhineland for a French promise to allow the Russians to occupy as much of Poland as they desired. Thus, in the years before the Russian collapse, the French went from tepid on the Polish question to hot, only to back down again just before the negotiations became irrelevant and the Tsar's regime was overthrown. If the Russian revolutions of 1917 threw the Polish question into a kind of limbo, then American intervention into the war and Woodrow Wilson's avowed mission for Poland revived that nation's importance in the last year of the war. Yet even Wilson's famed 13-point created additional problems for the Poles. By arguing for the Polish state to be created rather than recreated, and by insisting that the lands which should constitute this new state shall be made up of undisputably Polish populations, Wilson both underrated the seriousness of the Polish question and made it more difficult to answer at the same time. 
Poland was not being created, it was being recreated, and this was an important fact for those Poles that had learned of their national past, just as it was important for those officials who would have to determine the rights which the Poles had to certain territory. Did Poles possess such rights because ethnic Poles lived there, or because the Commonwealth flag had once flown there? This raised a further problem. With some exceptions, undisputably Polish lands did not exist. The centre of the Congress Kingdom Poland, based out of Napoleon's Grand Duchy of Warsaw, was the accepted rump state of any future Polish state. But additional questions abounded, as we have already seen, about where the boundaries for such a state would be drawn. Woodrow Wilson, with his 13th point, vocalised the Polish question, but as with his other 14 points, he gave no suggestion as to how the stated point might be achieved. If anything, he actually complicated and vexed those Poles and non-Poles who would have a formidable task ahead of them trying to entangle what was or was not Polish land. By emphasising the ethnic Polish quality of the claims above all, Wilson also undercut other more realistic factors on the ground, such as the historic, security-related or economic questions. Even worse than this, in the same breath he contradicted himself, desiring a Polish state which was indisputably Polish, and then declaring the rights of that state to have access to the sea through a region which was known to not be undisputably Polish. This, well, it just made no sense, and it confused a great many official who was later to sit down and discuss what the president had actually meant. Again, as we have said, the Poles on the ground in early November 1918 believed it imperative that they thus grab all they could carry to demonstrate how undisputably Polish this land was. If the land did not object, then surely this was proof of its undisputably Polish nature. Wilson's contradictory and flawed position on Poland deserves to be highlighted, because it is often assumed by way of his speeches that he was a pro-Polish president who understood and sympathised with the Polish plight. Yet, the recent evidence suggests that he did not. In fact, the historian, Mieczysław Bykupski, noted that Wilson cared less for Poland than for what the creation of Poland would represent, that being the New World Order. Poland did not have to take in its old lands, it merely had to exist, propped up by the League of Nations, as a shining example of the abandonment of the unfair old ways of Europe and the embracing of the new. Wilson was pragmatic enough to keep his vision of Poland small, so as not to offend the German or Russian empires, which he imagined, at least for a time, would help enforce this new order. As Biskupsi noted, Poland was thus important and insignificant at the same moment. It served to represent the new order. It was a crime made right. By restoring Poland, the victim of the old system, Wilson was providing an example of the new, no longer dominated by the arbitrariness of great power rivalries. But the key here is appreciating the linkage between the 13th and 14th points. The first, calling for a restored Poland, was absolutely dependent upon the functioning of the League of Nations outlined in the 14th. Without the League, Poland could not exist. It was the exemplar of a new Europe because it was erected on principles foreign to the old one. It had no defensible strategic frontiers, its only port was held by tenuous bonds, its economic needs were largely ignored, much of its historic territory and a great number of its co-nationals were placed beyond its borders. Poland, in Woodrow Wilson's mind, could only survive in a new Europe. If such a creation did not eventuate, Poland's fate was dire. Wilson was thus no strategic friend of Poland. 
Rather, he was the champion of a new Europe in which Poland functioned as an example of the continent's moral superiority to the pre-1918 world. Poland was for Wilson not a cause, but a convenient example to be used to illustrate his larger principles. In the event, Wilson did not count either on the determination of the French to campaign for Polish empowerment at Paris, or on the industriousness and ambitions of the Poles themselves. Much as their neighbours had been doing for centuries, the American president underestimated the degree of passion present among the common Polish person for independence, and for a genuine opportunity to rule themselves after more than a century of oppression. The fait accompli which the Poles presented by late 1918 was not the only such development that outpaced the minds and pens of those travelling to Paris. By the time the conference opened in Paris in mid-January 1918, East-Central Europe resembled a patchwork of new states all vying for recognition and resolute in their determination not to give a single bit of ground to their neighbours. The Poles were but one ingredient in this concoction of nationalism and disruption, and they were far from its most difficult or urgent ingredient. As Margaret Macmillan put it in The Peacemakers when detailing the impressions which the West had of the Eastern Europeans, The Poles were, of course, dashing and brave, but quite unreasonable. The Romanians, charming and clever, but sadly devious. The Yugoslavs, well, rather Balkan. The Czechs were refreshingly Western. An American traveller taking in the sights of the crumbling Austro-Hungarian Empire in late 1918 seemed to agree. Of all the people whom we saw in the course of our journey, he noted, the Czechs seemed to have the most ability and common sense, the best organisation and the best leaders. The Czechs wouldn't have the opportunity to make their case to the Paris Peace Conference until early February 1919, but by that time they had already worked to create something uniquely their own. Much like their neighbours, the Czechs on the ground worked to create their own interpretation of what they believed they were entitled to and what they were owed. Once this fait accompli had been crafted, it was up to the powers of the Paris Peace Conference not to instruct, but to approve. The Czech leaders, foremost among them, Thomas Masaryk, the president of the new state, and Edward Benesch, its foreign minister, were well known in Paris. The two men had long advocated Czech interests on the world stage. The deputation to Paris in February 1919 was merely the end result of several months of hard work, which had itself been preceded by several years of campaigning, lobbying and raising awareness. The Czech cause acquired a certain romance and sophistication, largely thanks to Benesch and Masaryk, but it was to end tragically in spring 1939, as we know today. During the Munich crisis of 1938, Britain and France performed the most infamous appeasement operation, which granted Adolf Hitler the Sudetenland and left Czechoslovakia defenceless. At one point during these dire events for Czech independence, Hitler so berated Edward Benesch that the foreign minister, who was president by 1938, collapsed under the strain. In late 1918, though, 20 years before this crime was perpetuated on Czech independence, Benesch and Masaryk were riding high. The two men believed, correctly, that their curious state had straddled precisely the right course between activism and neutrality, between passivity and assertiveness, between charm and aggression. 
virtually all of Paris was taken with the bohemian promises of Benesh and Masaryk and the grand representations the two men made. The Czech case was unique in that it was a direct interest of France, for it could be used to insulate Germany, just like the Polish instance. It was also out of bounds of American interests, and it was no interest at all to the British or Italians. A strong, almost unexpected buffer in the centre of Europe, at the literal crossroads of the continent, along the Danube, based in Prague and Bratislava, formerly Pressburg, provided a solution to problems which were coming into view by spring 1919, and which quickly became chronic. Bolshevism was spreading eastwards. A communist revolt in Hungary in March 1919 seemed to hint that it would spread all the way to France. Not so, said Benish and Masaryk. We will stop it. The Czechs had been active in another venture too, that of stopping the Germans. In summer 1918, Czech prisoners streamed westwards to join with the Italians, but mostly the French, in stemming the German tide. All this under the orders of Thomas Masaryk and Edward Benish, the two men who had spent much of the war in Paris, lobbying promises and resting commitments from anyone they could find. The two men were a good team. Masaryk was the well-read, well-spoken and well-known cultural beacon of an old bohemian way, while Benesch was a stern, somewhat colourless man with an abundance of energy and, crucially, loyalty to Masaryk's vision. The vision, in many respects, was a curious one. Not only did Masaryk envision a Czech state based on Prague and old Bohemia, he also imagined a Slovakian appendage attached to it. Slovakia had not really been joined in any meaningful sense to the Czechs since the 10th century. The breakdown of the medieval Hungarian kingdom, which had ruled over Slovaks for longer, and the Habsburg-Turkish takeover of the region significantly blurred the debate. Masaryk and Benesch provided a solution to this historic blurring. Slovaks, the two men claimed, wished to be part of this new Czech state. A third of the world's Slovaks lived not in Europe, but in the United States, so early in 1918, Masaryk elected to take a tour of America's major cities. It ended in a four-day meeting in Philadelphia, and a great deal of symbolism. It was in that city in mid-October 1918 that Thomas Masaryk joined the Mid-European Democratic Union, a grouping of then-stateless Europeans who pledged to uphold democratic principles and systems once their homeland was restored or recreated. Significantly, Masaryk was the first to sign the document which enshrined the goals of this grouping, and he used the same inkwell which had been used to sign the American Declaration of Independence 150 years before. Thomas Masaryk, as you may be aware, knew what he was doing. Critical though these moves were, though, it was in Pittsburgh in spring 1918 that Masaryk conducted his most important P.O.R., it was there that he met with Slovakian groups and assured them of his plans for Slovak representation in the new state that he was planning to build. Slovaks would have their own parliament, their own courts and their own official language, kind of like a dual monarchy of the Habsburgs, but without the Habsburg element. Now, Thomas Masaryk did not let it be known that Slovaks in Europe were not very interested or attracted by his Czechoslovak idea. This display, though, was vital to show Woodrow Wilson that Masaryk and his Czech statehood idea fit with the vague concept of self-determination, which the US president was still working on. 
If the Czechs and Slovaks together wanted to join forces, then as far as the rest of the world was concerned, it meant less work for them. Masaryk bolstered his case by bringing some pro-cooperation Slovaks with him, who did believe that the two nations could work well together. By and large, though, Masaryk's plan was greatly aided by the pace of events in Europe. The collapse of Austria-Hungary and the image of Czech soldiers fighting for France was one thing, but a curious additional scene also catapulted the Czechs into a sort of legendary status. Having been raised as a brigade of the Russians in 1917, some 50,000 Czechs were free to return home and defend their nation, and Lenin actually permitted them to do so. With Masaryk then leading the way, the Czechs hopped on board the train to Vladivostok with the expectation that they would then get a boat back to Central Europe and thereby avoid the Central Powers' grip on the European heartland. This plan was interrupted, though, by the flood of Hungarian Bolsheviks who moved eastwards to fight for the new Russian regime. These marching Hungarian Bolsheviks smacked right into the Czechs, hostilities broke out, and suddenly this 50,000-strong contingent of Czechs was at war with the Bolsheviks while in the Bolsheviks' territory. They survived by taking to the railway stations, and by sheer luck, they even managed to seize the gold reserves of the new Bolshevik regime. News of this scenic route, which the Czechs took home, combined with records of their service on the Western Front, led the British, French and Americans in their turn to recognise the Czechoslovak National Council as a de facto belligerent government. None of the three, however, actually stated what lands this new Czechoslovak state would rule over. Establishing this was supposed to be the mission of the Paris Peace Conference. But the returning Masaryk and Czech soldiers took up this challenge first. By January 1919, Masaryk had established his regime in Prague, operating from the palace once used by Bohemia's kings, and as demoralised Austrian, German and Hungarian soldiers had retreated into delineated borders, Czechs rose up and staked their claims. Conveniently for the Czechs, the French had instructed the former powers of the region to move out of reach of the Czech soldiery, so that their takeover was not without protest, but it was militarily uncontested. So much had been done in the Czech case, but much was still left to do. Pipe dreams and practical dreams of all sizes took over the debate, as did national aspirations of some Czechs, and even Slovaks, who had had a taste of success and the thrill of national realisation and wanted more. Land in Poland, Hungary and Germany was all claimed. Some even talked of a land corridor to link the new Czech state with the new Slav kingdom. Poland, Czechoslovakia and Yugoslavia were, Benesh assured the French, closely linked by national identity, culture and history. What Benesh failed to mention was that each of these three new states all had competing claims and counterclaims on one another's lands. Still though, the Czech case was unique, Benesh claimed, because in his words, The nation, after 300 years of servitude and vicissitudes which had almost led to its extermination, felt that it must be prudent, reasonable and just to its neighbours, and that it must avoid provoking jealousy and renewed struggles, which might again plunge it into another similar danger. The new government in Prague, Benesh added, wished to do all in their power to assist a just and durable peace. Promises to uphold the peace, commitments to respect the rights of those minorities which they wished to absorb, examples of Czech cultural uniqueness and difference, of the Slovak friendship and affinity for Czech partnership, 
All of these were themes which did the rounds before the Czech presentation of their case in Paris on the 5th of February 1919. By that date, though, Czechoslovakia's borders had mostly been set and its government established and recognised. Now, we're going to put a pin in the Czech case for the moment, having established their background, and we'll return to them in the future, as our analysis allows. For now, though, we should turn our attention to another Eastern presence, one which hovered curiously between defeated and triumphant, the Romanians. Romania's experience of the Great War reads something like a weather vane. As the Allied fortunes improved, so did Romania's dreams grow and her chest swell with pride. Once the fortunes deteriorated, though, and manners became desperate, Romania's wily premier, Ioan Bratianu, followed the lead of the Russians and made a harsh peace just before the Central Powers collapsed. Unlike his Russian partner, though, Bratianu's government made the cynical decision to declare war on the Central Powers on the 10th of November 1918, almost as a nod to the way the winds were blowing once more. By that point, of course, the direction of the winds had been more than certain, and Germany was reportedly knee-deep in armistice talks in some undisclosed location in France. To Bretianu, though, this technicality did not necessarily matter. He had here demonstrated his original pledge to stand firm with the Allies. He had shown that Romania would never leave its friends in the lurch. Surely Bucharest would be rewarded for such loyalty and tenacity. Ioan Bretianu was the personification of Romania in several striking respects. Perhaps most notably though, and most unflatteringly, Bretianu had an inflated sense of his own self-importance. He was utterly convinced that Romania was entitled to the post-war spoils. He was convinced as well that, according to this 1916 treaty which brought Romania into the war, she was entitled to a seat at the great power table. The Allies might claim that Romania forfeited this treaty when it broke from the Allied camp and signed the Treaty of Bucharest in May 1918, the harsh sequel to the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk, which made Romania effectively a client state of the Germans. But Ioan Bertianu would insist that this was an unfair viewpoint. After all, the wily premier claimed, it was not really Romania that had sued for peace in May 1918, but a pro-German collaborationist government which had overthrown his rightful regime in a coup. That coup had been illegal, therefore the government had been illegal, therefore peace had not officially been made, therefore the original treaty had not been broken, therefore, ladies and gentlemen, Romania should still be treated as a leading member of the Allied camp. Bertianu had, it seemed, an answer for everything. Bertianu was charming, a womanizer, a lover of French prose and culture, and a member of a Romanian elitist political dynasty. His father had led Romania into the Russo-Turkish War of 1877, and while it had emerged victorious, the subsequent peace arrangements had stripped Romania of her spoils and handed them to Russia. It had been with an anxious view of avoiding being taken advantage of at the peace table, again in 1916, that Bertiano had made such exorbitant demands. By early 1917, France and Russia had already secretly arranged to renegotiate this treaty at a later date. Bitter pills were in store for Romania once again, it seemed. But Romania was saved, this irritation, by a worse trauma which followed the collapse of Russia. Russia's exit from the war freed up the Austrians and Germans to pour into the country, and this defencelessness explains Bretiana's behaviour. He had been, it was true, deposed in a coup, 
but it is unlikely that he could have done much better than the terms which were offered, even if he had been in power. As it happened, though, the circumstances which had forced Romania to make a hasty peace in 1918 also provided it with an ideal opportunity to avenge itself upon its neighbours later in the year, with Russians, Germans, Austrians and Hungarians on the back foot and dealing with their own problems, Bretiano's government suddenly found that they held the balance of power in this furiously contested region, the crossroads of so many interests, peoples and histories along the Black Sea in its interior. Much like its neighbours, Bretiano's Romania moved to seize through force what diplomacy had never given it before. Large chunks of Transylvania were seized, as was Bukovina, a small region sandwiched between Romania and Ukraine. Romanians did live in these regions, but so did Hungarians, Poles, Ukrainians, Slavs of all kinds, and even some smattering of Germans. Bratiano didn't let these complexities get in the way of a good story, though. He believed with good reason that by acting quickly, he could take what was historically Romania's by right, and the Paris Peace Conference would then smooth over any cracks which followed. His pragmatism, or rather cynicism, left Harold Nicholson unimpressed. Bretiano is a bearded woman, a forceful humbug, a Bucharest intellectual, a most unpleasing man. Handsome and exuberant, he flings his fine head sideways, catching his own profile in the glass. He makes elaborate verbal jokes, imagining them to be Parisian. It was hardly surprising that Harold Nicholson was becoming exasperated at the sheer volume of sneaky but also needy characters who populated the Paris Peace Conference. Like the Czechs, the Romanians would have their chance to present their case in late January, early February 1919, so we will be returning to them on that date for an On This Day episode in our narrative. We will also be spending time on Greece in a separate episode, and the defeated eastern powers of Bulgaria, Hungary and Austria, so put them aside for now as well. For the remainder of this episode, I would like to focus on one of the most perplexing issues which reached right into the heart of the Balkan problem the curious case of the magically appearing Yugoslavia. Those that had misunderstood the Balkans in summer 1914, when the assassination of Franz Ferdinand had led Europe down the path to war, found that they understood it even less four years later, when the time came to peer past the Western Front and consider what exactly was going on there. Notwithstanding the reservoirs of ignorance, there had been several important stops on the discovery tour of the Balkans during the war. Serbia, for one, had been a member of the Allied camp and had been overrun by a combined Bulgarian and Austrian offensive in 1916. The anguish this caused the Serbs and the momentous joy it provided to the Bulgarians, momentary though it was, were in themselves symptoms of a region which harboured too many rivalries to count, too many competing claims to imagine, too many dividing lines to explain and too many different peoples to absorb. The Balkan Wars of 1912-13 had set the Orthodox Christian powers of the Baltic states in Greece, Serbia, Montenegro, Bulgaria, Romania against the ailing Ottoman Empire, but dissatisfied with the spoils, Bulgaria began the sequel in summer 1913, only to be dogpiled by its neighbours and the Turks in return. The sheer destruction this conflict caused all sides, but especially the Bulgarians who suffered a national trauma when the losses were seen to be for nothing, also created problems for the great powers. So dangerous did the turmoil emanating out of the Balkans appear to be by late summer 1913 that two unlikely powers, for their own reasons, Germany and Britain, cooperated to mediate an end to the set of conflicts. By the conclusion of the peace in September 1913, it was clear who the winner was. 
Serbia had ballooned in size, and her claims along the Adriatic had been considered, though following Austrian pressure they were rejected. An independent, Albanian state was imagined to plug the gap between the Serbian claims on the Dalmatian coast and the vacuum left by the Turkish exit. Centuries of history were undone with the forceful ejection of the Turks from the Balkans, but Europe barely had time to catch its breath and consider the significance of this seismic change before the consequences would explode onto the world stage yet again. Having emerged within a year to occupy a far more considerable position on its doorstep than they once had, Vienna viewed its Serbian problem with increased alarm and danger. The fury with which Konrad von Hotzendorf, the chief of staff of the Austro-Hungarian army, demanded that Serbia be crushed, belied the fact that the grizzled commander was kept awake at night by the potential which the Serbs had to unravel the fabric of the Habsburg monarchy. Serbia represented free Slavs. She was the confident, assertive, expanding power of the Balkans, supported by Russia and determined to wrest from all dying empires her right to absorb all peoples of a similar race and outlook, no matter how vague those qualifications were. The Habsburg Empire contained too many nationalities to count, and only recently they had added a new appendage to it, in 1908 when Bosnia was annexed, following some controversial diplomacy. It was plain that Vienna and Belgrade must soon butt heads. So long as the Austro-Hungarian Empire harboured ethnic Serbs, Serbia would also be the destabilising influence on Austria's borders. Something had to be done, but nobody in Vienna seemed capable of doing much of anything. Franz Josef, that relic of an emperor, was not about to institute change at his age, having been on the throne since revolution had swept him there in 1848. Franz Ferdinand was the cold, much maligned and estranged member of the Habsburg family, the nephew of the aged emperor and, thanks to some untimely deaths and suicides, the heir to the Habsburg throne. While the title of reformer would perhaps be a bit of a stretch, Franz Ferdinand did believe that Austria's relationship with its neighbours, particularly the Slavs, would have to change. This desire to change things was sourced more from a desire to preserve the Habsburg monarchy than from any love or care for the Slavs, but it did lead Franz to advocate some pretty radical changes, including an end to the dual monarchy of Hungary and Austria, and its replacement with a triple monarchy, with the third element based out of Zagreb in Croatia, and representing the Slavs. This triple monarchy would preserve Habsburg integrity and reduce the influence of the meddling Hungarians, which Franz despised far more than the Slavs. As the heir, Franz Ferdinand was required to inspect and advise on military affairs, which included the status of newly annexed regions. Thus, in the last week of June 1914, the 50-year-old Habsburg Emperor-in-waiting ventured to Sarajevo for a military parade and for other PR purposes. It was the stupidest, most untimely, most typically Habsburg thing Franz could have done. Franz's trip to Bosnia would coincide with the Battle of Kosovo from 1389 an emotive day for Serb nationalists as it represented the death knell in their medieval independence and the beginning of their capitulation to the Turks. Here now came another conqueror, a Habsburg one, looking for capitulation, and a group of radicals, provided with intimate details of Franz Ferdinand's itinerary in the local newspaper, refused to bow down. They would kill the heir to the Habsburg throne. That would show Vienna and definitely not have any dire consequences for the entire world. The rest is of course known to us, but despite the centrality of the Serbian element and of the Balkans and the eruption of the Great War, precious few individuals made any attempts to gain some comprehension of the region during the war, or to ponder what the best way to peacefully contain so many national groupings would be. 
Like so many other questions which arose at the Paris Peace Conference, and which those delegates were forced to deal with, the Balkans was a problem child which had never ceased kicking and screaming even before the war had erupted. No solution had been achievable before 1914, and few of the Allies had expended much thoughts on how a solution could be found in 1919. Fortunately for the Allies, though, a great deal of work had been done for them already, and thanks to some committed, ambitious Serb nationals, the Balkan map was about to become a great deal tidier. Pre-war Serbia was linked to post-war Serbia by several remembered factors, but a significant one which nobody could overlook in late 1918 to early 1919 was the person who had been at its helm for some time, the Serbian Premier Nikola Pesic. Pesic was in his 70s, with a white beard and weathered face that gave absolutely nothing away. This was just the way he wanted it. One of the craftiest and most tenacious statesmen in southeastern Europe, was how David Lloyd George described him, but it really depended on whom you asked. Few of his colleagues trusted him, and some resented his grip on power but did not dare to challenge it. Power and Serbia, it was said, were two things that Pesic loved in equal measure. Pesic had been responsible for the defiant dampening of the mood of the moment when Austria's ambassador to Belgrade had attempted to deliver the ultimatum at the height of the July crisis in 1914. He had blunted its impact and exposed the Habsburg war plan as being bogus from the offset, and yet Serbia had suffered terribly for its crimes, both real and imagined. It had not taken much to persuade Bulgaria to invade in league with the Austrians. And out of a population of 4.5 million, some 120,000 Serbs had died during the war. Pesic believed that it was time Serbia cashed in on this service to fulfil its national and regional destiny. The only problem, of course, was what not just the Allied powers, but its immediate neighbours would think about an enlarged Greater Serbia, which had long since been the dream. The simple version of Balkan history had it that every power worth its salt in the region could claim some form of ancestral record, which thereby enabled its people to claim a right to a greater version of itself. The Bulgars, infamously, had rallied against the Byzantines and dominated the Balkans for centuries. King St. Stephen had arrived with his Magyars and forged a medieval Hungarian kingdom without equal thereafter. Greater Serbia, which dominated the interior and snaked along the Dalmatian coast, was a further iteration of this medieval expansion. A great deal of the claims stretched back to medieval times then, but since the post-war world represented the first chance since medieval times to press one's claim to all this land, without the old great powers of the Habsburg, German, Russian or Turkish looking on, it is hardly surprising that old history became so important, so motive and so racially charged. Unfortunately for Serbia though, a great deal had changed since medieval times not least the further division of the Balkan region into splintered religious, linguistic and cultural camps. Under these circumstances it appears strange on the surface that the solution which was chosen was some form of union of the South Slavs under Serbian leadership as a kingdom of Yugoslavia. Indeed it seems that these Serbian efforts had been preempted, since in late October with the retreat of the Habsburgs, Croatians had taken matters into their own hands. In their capital of Zagreb, the National Council of Croats, Serbs and Slovenes announced its independence from Austria. Was this the fait accompli which all had been waiting for? Not quite. It was plainly separate from Serbia proper, and those that sat on this council at Zagreb professed varied aims, ranging from an independent Croatia to a federation with neighbouring Serbia, Montenegro, Albania and others, 
to realise some kind of Balkan dream together. What was Pesic to do about all this? Well, at first he cooperated with the South Slav or Yugoslav National Council, based in Zagreb, as it was calling itself, and he was encouraged also to forge a coalition agreement with its Serbian, Croatian and Slovenian members. As Pesic had learned, though, might would make right. Serbian troops were in occupation of certain Montenegrin and Bosnian towns, and with some prodding, these local councils voted for union with Serbia. Before long, against all odds, the net began to close in on the Croats, who had once seemed to be in the driver's seat. The only military force which the Yugoslav or National Council possessed in Zagreb was 80,000 men, and these were still holed up on the gradually demobilising Western Front. By the second week of November, these men still hadn't returned, and yet law and order was collapsing around Croatia, as its statesmen watched bitterly and anxiously on. Against the wishes of those on the ground, the Italians began to move in from the west and then gobble up portions of the Adriatic coastline, while southern portions of the once expectantly Yugoslav state had since resolved to fuse themselves to Serbia. Serving as the filling to this crisis sandwich, and with no means to defend its interests, Croatia accepted that it was better to join them rather than to be beaten by them. And by them, they meant Serbia. On the 25th of November 1918, the National Council in Zagreb, which had once advocated a Yugoslav federation, voted instead for a straightforward union with the Serbs. By maintaining pressure, Pesic had demonstrated after all that might did make right. Serbia, technically speaking, was now larger than she had ever been before. Upon closer inspection, though, it was of course apparent that this newly swollen Slav state wasn't quite Serbia anymore. The last week of November 1918 was a confusing one for all involved in Balkan affairs. In a whirlwind of activity, Serbia had apparently enhanced its position by gobbling up its Balkan neighbours in a move unimaginable only months before. The emergency circumstances of the moment facilitated the Serbian manoeuvre, aided by the Italians, who first believed that Belgrade's swallowing of these different minorities would cause the new state to choke to Italy's benefit, but then, once it became clear that Serbia would be able to hold the state together after all, Yugoslavia became Italian enemy number one. The French supported the Yugoslavs as a foil to the Italians. The British and Americans couldn't care less about what happened in the region. Pesic had gambled and he had won, but he was still not entirely satisfied. Serbia was enlarged, and the different cities of Croatia, Slovenia, Bosnia and Montenegro were superseded by the capital of the new state, Belgrade. The king of the Serbs would be the king of the Serbs, Croats and Slovenes. But then there was the thorny question, what to call the new state? Non-Serbs, who made up just over 50% of the population, wished to retain that name that was doing the rounds, Yugoslavia, and that is the name history has handed down to us, since it was the one largely decided upon. You might be interested to know, though, that Serbs were not content with this, because they wanted this new state to display something of the Serbian predominance and leadership it contained. It wasn't enough for Serbs, apparently, that the army should be Serbian, the primary language of business Serbian, the capital Serbian, the king Serbian, and the most important bureaucrats Serbian. Yugoslavia was the official name of the kingdom only from 1929. Before then, it depended on whom you asked, whether you were living in the Greater Kingdom of Serbia, the Kingdom of the Serbs, Croats and Slovenes, or simply Zagreb, a Croatian city. Serbs tended to use the longer name, or even Greater Serbia, 
while non-Serbs preferred Yugoslavia because it inferred a certain equality and unity which they wanted desperately to believe in. During the Paris Peace Conference, as if matters weren't confusing enough, the terms were used interchangeably, and nobody seemed particularly well informed as to which national grouping fit where, or what differences distinguished them from their neighbours. David Lloyd George was once famously heard to inquire whether Serbs and Croats spoke the same language. The unequal and often unhappy marriage between these different and varied peoples, many of whom had only recently fought on different sides in the Great War, don't forget, would boil over tragically at various points, most notably in the 1940s and 90s. For now, though, the hardest decisions had been largely made, and it remained to hammer home the significance of what had been accomplished by this series of Serbian fait accomplis by making an official announcement. Prince Alexander of Serbia was given this task, with the date of the 1st of December 1918 serving as his chance to shine. The announcement, or perhaps performance, would be a better term, ensured that for better or for worse, these peoples would be tied together for much of the century. Their story began as one of intense, bitter, bloody conflict, and it was to end the same way. These four powers, the Poles, Czechs, Romanians and Yugoslavs, had experienced a great deal of national awakening by the time the Paris Peace Conference opened in mid-January 1919. By that point, indeed, many had already staked their claims to new lands and established states which they believed would last the test of time. Scenes which were still to come, and which we will examine in time, of the different Eastern deputations to the Paris Peace Conference in the last week of January and first week of February 1919, were not actions designed to demonstrate the supplication of these new nation-states and mini-empires to the will of the Western Allies. They didn't require the approval of the Allies, but the tacit confirmation of what had already been done. For too long these peoples had been kept low, now the age of empires had come and gone, and it was time for a new age, the age of nationalism, of self-determination on a genuine, actual level, and of nation-states that could house this idea. Thus the ending of imperialism closed one Pandora's box only to open another, one which led through several jagged paths to the Second World War, and which the Allies proved absolutely unable to tame during the Paris Peace Conference. Claims had been made, peoples offended, hearts broken and dreams realised, but this was only a part of the battle. The rest would take place in the city of Paris and along the glamorous halls of Versailles. deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 